0: Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com.
1: The FT. You're listening to World Weekly with me, Gideon Rachman. On the program this week, is this the end of the line for Berlusconi? He is really a political fighter,
0: and has survived numerous crises in the past. The difference now is that, firstly, he's 74, he's getting a bit old, and a lot of people are really beginning to desert him. Feeney is actually the last in a long line of former allies who've decided the time has come to leave. And food price inflation in emerging
1: markets.
2: We have rising incomes around the world, and in particular, people in emerging markets are buying better and better food and that often means buying meat which in turn increases the grain consumption of those farming industries and this is an underlying long-term trend.
1: But first to Ireland and the news this morning from the Irish governor Patrick Honahan, that Ireland is definitely likely to ask for a bailout loan of tens of billions of euros from the European Union and the International Monetary Fund. Joining me to discuss this is the FT's international affairs commentator David Gardner and Martin Sandbu, who writes on economics for the paper Martin, can you explain to us, first of all, how it come to this?
3: Ireland's sovereign debt has come to be seen as completely unsustainable. Now, Ireland started out before the crisis with a fairly reasonable fiscal position. It had surplus, it had very low debt... What's happened is that the crisis has hit Ireland very hard, and it's hit its banks very hard. I mean, these are the banks, remember, that borrowed a lot of money abroad, invested it into a real estate bubble, as it turned out to be, and have suffered huge losses as a result. Now, the government's problem has been that it put a lot of money into these banks and guaranteed many of its liabilities, and that has sent the sovereign debt uh, skyrocketing in the sovereign debt markets We saw at the time of Greece's crisis in the spring a rise in the yields for Irish sovereign bonds. That came down in the summer, but they've been coming up again in the past couple of weeks. Are they literally going to bail out the
1: banks with this money, or is it just to show the markets that there's money there if if
3: need be? It depends who they are, because the Irish obviously have been resisting this pressure to go to the European financial stability facility to borrow money. I don't like to call it a bailout. It's a loan. A loan that will have to be paid back by Irish taxpayers. The European Central Bank and the European Commission have been putting pressure on Ireland to borrow in order to calm down the bond markets, in part because other peripheral European countries are seeing the same problems with rising yields Portugal and Spain. Ireland itself doesn't actually need to borrow money until next summer. But as you say, the banks are a very big problem. The markets have very little confidence in the Irish banks, and there's a fear that if there's a bigger crisis in the banking sector in Ireland that will make things even worse for the government and that will make things worse for other governments so the Europeans are sort of saying out of solidarity you should take this money from us and use it to uh, to, to buttress your banking system
1: so having essentially failed to stop stop the fire in Greece they're now building another fire break in Ireland but I know you have reservations about these this deal could, could you explain why?
3: The, the European Financial Stability Facility can't go directly to the banks. It's, it will be a loan to the government of Ireland. Now, I find it slightly puzzling to think that making the Irish government borrow even more is going to calm down the bond market's nerves about Irish sovereign debt. Furthermore, I think that the Irish government has already put a lot of money into its banks and there are still probably losses to come. This is taxpayers subsidising the losses of reckless banks and reckless lenders to the banks. I don't think if they now borrow this money just to put it into more bank equity, I think that's you know, that might at best buy some time, but it will just mean that the taxpayers are losing even more money. It might be worth taking this loan so that they have money in case there is a series of bank failures, which could happen, but they shouldn't put the money right into the banks now before they actually reform them and make sure that creditors also take some losses.
1: Now, David Garner, is there a lot of anger in Ireland and is there a lot of actual hardship at the moment or are they still anticipating bad times to come?
4: I think there has been a lot of anger. It hasn't spilled out in the way that it did in the late spring in Athens, but it's there, it's handled with a certain amount of uh, sardonic humour. But the cumulative austerity measures really draconian measures that the Irish government has been forced to take as a result of standing behind these vast losses of the banks are beginning to bite in terms of lower take-home salaries for civil servants, which are typically between 15 and 25% less than they were about two years ago, in terms of in the private sector, all but about Twenty percent of private sector companies have imposed either directly or indirectly through the abolition of things like overtime or, or premium rates for certain hours worked and so on wage cuts. Yes, this is all beginning to and you know the the rate of foreclosures and on mortgages. But
1: are they directing the anger at their own politicians, at Europe, I mean, or bankers, or everybody?
4: Up until now, primarily at their own politicians and the Fianna Foyle government in particular, which will be wiped out uh, sooner rather than later. I doubt very much whether they can hang on much beyond January. It's a moot point even now whether on December the 7th, when they present the budget, that they can get it through. They have a tiny majority, theoretically, of three seats, but their own backbenchers are beginning to peel off in order to try and survive the meltdown everybody knows is coming. Their coalition partners, the Greens, said in the last 24 hours they're not sure that they... Should any longer be in government with Finnoil. So there's the makings of a political crisis here, which we could stumble into at any minute.
1: For me, like you, following European affairs over some period, one of the great and most cheering stories of the last 25 years has been this incredible emergence of Ireland, which had been, you know, a poor country, a country of emigration, into a much more confident phase, a much richer, more outward-looking
4: country. Is all that now going to disappear? Are we oh, going? No, I don't think so at all. No, you you can look at it. This way I mean and it, 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 it may sound a little bit bizarre to say this where we stand now, but if Ireland merely goes back to the end of the real boom of the 90s into the early uh, uh, 2000s the Cel- the real Celtic tiger phase which was based on the tradable goods sector, essentially. And don't forget, they still have a current account surplus. They got 30 billion euros of foreign direct investment last year in the trough of the recession. Their industrial exports are booming. If they were merely to go back to 2003, they would still be in a pretty good place. But as a consequence of the false boom, the reckless lending that... Uh, Martin was talking about the artificial prolongation of the boom, for which Fina Foyle bears great responsibility. They've got to work through that while getting back to Celtic Tigerdom, as it were. And the danger then becomes that it's not back to the 90s, but back to the 80s and the debt deflation.
1: David Gardner and Martin Sandbu, thank you very much indeed. Now to Italy and the resignation of four officials earlier this week over yet another scandal involving the Prime Minister, Silvia Berlusconi, this time involving a 17-year-old nightclub dancer. Mr Berlusconi's former ally in the government, Gianfranco Fini, led the resignations and is now calling for the Prime Minister to stand down. Earlier today, Fiona Simon spoke to the FT's Rome bureau chief, Guy Dinmore, and she asked him if this could be one scandal too far for the Italian Prime Minister.
0: Each scandal has made Berlusconi that much weaker. It's also cost him his marriage with his wife, who's uh, suing for divorce. The one that makes this rather different is that the, the girl in question, who was hosted by Mr. Berlusconi um, at his villa at a party last year, was 17 at the time. She was paid a lot of money by him. And, and more importantly, he apparently, or at least this was confirmed uh, by one of his ministers, he actually telephoned a police station where this young girl was being detained on suspicion of theft in May suggesting that she was actually the niece of the Egyptian president, Hosni Mubarak, um, not specifically asking for her release, but apparently putting pressure on the uh, police chief to let her go.
5: So this seems to have been the final straw for Feeney. His party has the numbers to vote down the government, but it's a sensitive time given the turbulence on the bond markets. Do we know what Feeney's strategy is?
0: Well, first of all, all the parties are in agreement that the government really has to pass next year's budget uh, before it risks, the country risks going to elections. So the budget will, will be presented to Parliament. Tomorrow it will probably finish its passage within about a month. So by mid-December it looks as if we'll be looking at uh, votes of no confidence in the Berlusconi government. Feeney's 37 deputies in the lower house do have the balance of power. So if they manage to vote the government down, then we are probably looking at early elections next spring, although there is still a possibility that the president could try and ask somebody else to form a majority in parliament.
5: How badly has all this affected the confidence in the Italian economy?
0: Well, pretty badly in a way. The business community is very alarmed at the political instability, which has led for some months now, because this crisis has been brewing since last March, has led to a lot of paralysis in in reforms that had been planned. But on on the broader debt market situation with everyone worried about the future of um, Greece, Ireland, and Portugal, Italy for the moment remains to some extent shielded from this crisis in that the the government deficit is much lower and the, the debt levels, while higher, are still under control. So there's not a sense of panic on the international markets, I would say.
5: Berlusconi has said that he will call um, confidence votes in both Houses of Parliament once the budget is passed to see if he's got sufficient support to govern. If he loses, does that mean early elections next year?
0: Probably, but not necessarily. The, the head of state, Giorgio Napolitano, who's a former communist, could try and find somebody else in Parliament to form a new government, a centre-right government. So that's triggered speculation, in fact, that Giulio Tramonti, the finance minister, might be persuaded to abandon Berlusconi and, and form a new government. But I think this is rather unlikely. And, and I would say we're probably heading for elections next year.
5: Berlusconi's has also been engaged in a long running battle with the judiciary over his immunity from prosecution, in particular, whether he's required to appear in court in two cases against him. The Constitutional Court is going to rule on this next month. How serious is this for his prospects?
0: It is pretty serious. In fact, since Berlusconi. One uh, won elections two and a half years ago. A lot of time in Parliament has been spent on protecting Berlusconi from court cases pending against him. In fact, there are two at the moment. One uh, in which he allegedly bribed uh, his British lawyer, David Mills, to give false testimony on his behalf in, in court. Uh, and the other involves uh, possible tax evasion uh, committed by his, his media empire. A year ago, the Constitutional Court threw out a law which gave Berlusconi immunity while in office. So then Parliament voted in another law which um, allows the Prime Minister and other senior officials to avoid appearing in court on the basis that they're really too busy with their, their official duties. Now, the Constitutional Court will meet on December the 14th to rule whether this latest law is in line with the Constitution, and a lot of commentators believe they will throw it out, which means that in the middle of, a possible election campaign, Mr. Berlusconi could be once again summoned to court to, to face trial on, on these two cases I just mentioned.
5: So all this looks like a very uncomfortable end of year for Berlusconi. Do you do you agree with uh, some commentators who are predicting that this is finally the end of the Berlusconi era?
0: Well, it's tempting to say that. We have to remember that in 2006, when, when Berlusconi narrowly lost elections then, a lot People at the time were predicting the end of the Berlusconi era then. There is no one really on the center-right except for Gianfranco Fini, who are sort of challenging his leadership. So if new elections do take place, it's quite possible that Berlusconi will go in fighting, and he is really a political fighter and has survived numerous crises in the past. The difference now is that, firstly, he's 74, he's getting a bit old, And a lot of people are really beginning to desert him. Feeney is actually the last in a long line of former allies who have decided the time has come to leave. So one certainly has the feeling that this
1: is the end of an era, but I wouldn't
0: like to say that with certainty.
1: That was Fiona Simon talking to Guy Dinmore. To our final topic today, rising food prices. The UN's Food and Agriculture Organisation published its twice-yearly Food Outlook yesterday, warning that prices are likely to rise again next year and calling on farmers to increase their production of corn and wheat. Meanwhile, in China, the Prime Minister, Wen Jiabao, has reacted by saying his government's preparing to tame the price rises. Joining me in the studio to discuss the implications of all this is Stefan Wagstall, the FT's Beyond Bricks editor. And down the line from China, we have Jeff Dyer. Start with you, Stefan. Just give us the general picture. Why why have we got this spike in food prices?
2: A combination of things. One is some bad weather droughts uh, in Russia and Ukraine which have affected uh, the capacity of these two very large grain exporters to serve markets, and a couple of other weather-related interruptions. But on top of that, we have rising incomes around the world, and in particular, people in emerging markets are buying better and better food. And that often means buying meat, which in turn increases the grain consumption of those farming industries. And this is an underlying long-term trend.
1: And it means for the people who aren't doing better, presumably, the the sometimes called the bottom billion who rely on, on, the, on grain, they're experiencing rising food prices for their staples. Is that basically what's happening?
2: That's right. They are being squeezed uh, by The combination of these accidents that I mentioned plus uh, the growing capacity of the better off to buy the food they want.
1: And in 2008, we used the term food crisis and there were grain riots around the world. Has it got to that stage yet? Not
2: quite, but there's a number of countries where shortages are quite acute and the price pressures are are, are acute. And and, and this may well happen in the next few weeks, if not next few months, as um, the outlook there is fairly nervous.
1: Okay, well, we're joined now by Jeff Dyer, who's in China, where the authorities have been speaking out about this, and in fact, I believe, already beginning to impose price restraints. Jeff, how worried is the Chinese government?
6: They're very worried about the broader issue of inflation in the Chinese economy. At the moment, it's primarily in food, and at the moment it's really about cabbage prices in China. It's all about vegetables, and the price of cabbage has gone up quite a lot. But what they're more broadly worried about is this is part of a, a bigger surge in inflation that could start to undermine some of the huge stimulus that they've been injecting to the economy in the last couple of years.
1: Is this to any extent their fault? Are they the victims of the kind of external pressures that Stefan was describing, just a general global push in in food prices because of higher consumption and some droughts? Or is this Perhaps the Chinese seeing the downside of their own stimulus, the stimulus you mentioned, where they deliberately injected a lot of liquidity into the economy. Is that now leading to inflation? There are
6: two different ways to look at it. One is to say it's also a fact of bad weather, as Stefan was talking about, in the Chinese economy. Um, China, in terms of food, is quite self-sufficient. It doesn't import a huge amount. But uh, one of the reasons people think that vegetable prices have spiked in the last few weeks is there was a whole bunch of bad weather and storms over the summer. And that might be one explanation. But the other is that what we're really seeing is the reflection of the massive, massive monetary stimulus that China injected over the last couple of years, enough to, to put the Fed to shame, really. Uh, the M2 measure of money supply has increased by going on for 50% over the last couple of years. So there's been a huge injection of money into the economy, and that was very successful allowing the economy to survive the crisis and, in fact, to flourish. But the risk is that there is a big headache at the end of the process and that China will eventually have um, a big burst of inflation. And so even if the current round of inflation is just a short-term factor to do with a bit of bad weather and some food prices, there still is this looming risk that somewhere down the line over the next few months or the next couple of years that China will have a bad inflationary accident as a result of the stimulus plan.
1: Now, is this the kind of, uh, if you like, a little local difficulty that the government can manage quite effectively? Or is there at least a a concern that it could turn into something bigger? Because uh, I was talking to some China analysts who said, well, you know, one of the backgrounds to the civil unrest in 1989, culminating the Tiananmen Square massacre, was was inflation.
6: Definitely inflation is a very, very politically sensitive issue in China, as in most countries, but but very much so in China. But I think we put in a bit of context, inflation at the moment is 4.4%. Back in the late 1980s, and the round to was getting to 20% or something. So, so we're, we're a long way off from that yet. But the government is very worried. As much as in terms of political unrest, they're all, it's also just their image of competence as, com- as the Communist Party is a very competent manager of the economy. That's kind of also at stake when you do start to get inflationary pressures in the economy. And that's why they're trying to make it look as if they're doing a lot to try and keep prices down.
1: Jeff Dyer, thank you very much indeed for that. So thanks to Jeff in in Beijing and thank you also to Stefan here in the studio. That's it for this week. I'd also like to thank David Gardner and Martin Sanbu who joined me earlier in the studio and Guy Dinmore in Rome. World Weekly was produced by LJ Filatrani. Till next week, goodbye.
4: For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts.